0: Well, we are at the last week of Daniel's 70 weeks this morning. I know you've been waiting with bated breath, hoping we'd get through this. And as we have been working through these, this passage, verse 24 through 27, um, I know that it, uh, for some it's been difficult, it's been somewhat technical, Uh, We're going to be a little bit more technical this morning. Uh, Just try to track with me in your notes, and we will get through it. Uh, The reason it's so technical is because there are so many interpretations that are applied to this passage, uh, and it it can be, and indeed can be, it is very, very, very difficult. uh, If you've done any kind of study whatsoever uh, on prophecy, uh, you know how convoluted, uh, this whole arena of study can be, and more particularly when it comes to uh, the 77s. And so I want to identify some of those confusing points this morning and rehearse some of them that we're already familiar with. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Just look with me at the verse. He will confirm a covenant with the many for one seven, but in the middle of that seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And one who causes desolation will place abominations on a wing of the temple until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. The verses 24 through 27, that entire passage, uh, as I suggested to you before, is probably one of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament. This is why we're taking our time through it. And again, there are several ways to interpret the prophecy. And these ways can be divided into two major categories. And the first major category uh, we'll entitle Christological. Christological. That simply means that the prophecy has to do with Christ, with the person of Jesus Christ, uh, with the work of Jesus Christ, with the purpose of Jesus Christ. And this is. Uh, a conservative theological uh, approach to this passage, the Christological approach, that it has to do with the person, the work of Jesus. The second major category uh, we'll label non-Christological. Non-Christological, as the name implies, is that the prophecy is not about Jesus and that the prophecy is not really a prophecy at all. But it is a fulfillment of history already accomplished at the time the book of Daniel was written. And this, is, this would be a liberal theological perspective. There are various camps within Christianity, as you might understand, just as there are in life. And the two major camps would be the liberals and the conservatives, politically, theologically also. The non christological approach basically says that Daniel is not prophecy, that Daniel is simply recorded history after the fact, and so it records a whole bunch of events that happened after they're all completed, and then it's presented to us as prophecy. So really, uh, the liberals would say that, uh, that Daniel is not actually prophecy. It's a forgery purporting, purporting to be prophecy, and... Uh, Uh, These are the details uh, that really have been fulfilled in the life and the persecutions of a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes back in the second century BC. So all the fulfillment of these things happened in the second century. That's what the liberal theologians would have us to understand. Now the Christological interpretations, or the conservative interpretations, divide further into two major categories. So you have here Christological, non-Christological. And then under the Christological, you have two further divisions uh, that uh, come to bear. And these two further interpretations tend to interpret the 69 sevens, in other words, the first 483 years, as literal. The division comes... On the 70th, seven, the last week, which we're going to look at this morning. Those two camps, under the conservative viewpoint, the first one would be the all millennial camp. All millennial. All millennial people are people who, quite frankly, just don't, do not believe in a literal millennial reign or a 1,000 year reign of Christ on earth. You go back to Revelation chapter 20, the first 10 verses. And you read, uh, John records, about Jesus uh, apparently reigning on the earth for a thousand years. So all millennials do not believe in a millennium. Uh, They believe that that's a spiritual reference. It's not a literal reference. And that it, uh, it applies to the spiritual reign of Christ that's already happening in the hearts of believers. It's not a literal thousand years. So they'll spiritualize that. Uh, viewpoint. And all millennials generally regard the 70th week, the last week of Daniel's vision, as following immediately after the 69th week. And therefore, it's already fulfilled in history. So they would hold to what we described a couple of weeks ago as the continuous fulfillment theory. In other words, you have the first seven weeks, and you have the 62 weeks, which makes 69 weeks. Are you with me, right? And they would say that the 70th week follows right after the 69th week. So they would say everything has been continuously fulfilled. These were the. This would be the position of the all-millennials. The other camp held by premillennials. The other camp re- regards the view, uh, the 70th Seven or the last week of Daniel, is not continuous after the 69th, but rather uh, is separated from that first 69 weeks and is scheduled for fulfillment sometime in the future. And those seven years would precede immediately the second coming of Jesus Christ. So they would hold to what we identified two weeks ago as the gap theory. So you have the first 69 weeks, 483 years have already happened. They've already been fulfilled. Premillennials would say, now there's a gap. And that gap is between the the end of the 69th 7 and the 70th 7. The 70th 7, the last week, the last seven years, uh, would signal the second coming of Jesus Christ. Most most conservatives today uh, tend to be premillennial. There is a... Third view there's the post millennials, uh, and they see the reign of Christ coming gradually through the work of the church. So they'll look at the millennium as in effect now we're in the millennium, and it's the, it's it's being worked out through the life of the church. Now, uh, next time I'm going to actually do a road map and take you through all the all the. Um, Positions. We're going to talk about what a millennium is, where it is in the Bible, the different viewpoints on it. We're going to talk about the rapture and all that viewpoint. We're going to talk about all the terminology so you have a little firmer grasp on this. And then we'll launch in, after that, we'll launch into chapter 10 of Daniel. So uh, next time we'll do that. Now, although the difference of opinion exists in the interpretation of Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26, in other those those first several verses, there's a difference of opinion. The main issue has been whether fulfillment was non-Christological as the liberals would hold or Christological as most conservatives would hold. That's the main difference. Have these all been fulfilled or not? Do we take a non-Christological or a Christological understanding of this passage? Among conservatives, the Christological position, the major division has been between the all millennialists and the premillennialists, as I have described to you. The divergence of interpretation now comes down very simply uh, to verse 27. This is where it all comes to a head in verse 27. There, the choice is clearly between a literal fulfillment which would then require a futuristic interpretation with a gap between the 69th and 70th week, or there are several other options which would not necessarily uh, provide a gap. They would be more along the line of the continuous. In opposition to to that gap theory, in opposition to the futuristic interpretation, there are are at least these four potential interpretations. And these these are the most prevalent ones put forward. There are many others. I boil it down to these four, and I want to give them to you because I think you just need to be aware of them. And then I'm going to tell you why I do not think that they hold water. All right? So we'll go slow. I mean, you're glad I'm going to go slow. First of all, there is the liberal view—the liberal view that the 70th week or the 70th seven is fulfilled in the events of the second century B.C. involving Antiochus Epiphanes. So liberals will say, "Uh, "Look, all of this has been fulfilled. Uh, It's it's all continuous. There's no gap. There's no break. The whole." seventy-sevens was fulfilled in the events surrounding Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC. Remember he was a cruel king, cruel ruler. He's identified in uh, Daniel chapter 8. Now the reason, there's two reasons why I disagree with this view and one, uh, the view is built on the premise that Daniel is a forgery. I do not believe Daniel is a forgery. There's enough internal evidence in the book itself Uh, that gives us good reason to believe that it is actually a prophetic book. And secondly, the liberals believe that prophecy is impossible. Liberal theologians do not, quite frankly, believe in the miraculous. And this is where they become a real problem. So they would say that prophecy is miraculous. We do not believe in prophecy because prophecy would hence be miraculous. So because of those two reasons, I would not uh, agree with that position. The second view would be the view that's held by uh, many of the Jewish scholars. And that would be that the 70th week is fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in the year A.D. 70. But this view seems to contradict verse 26. Verse 26 says this. The city and the sanctuary will be destroyed, notice this, after the 69th week, but before the 70th week as mentioned in verse 27. So again, I, I suggest to you that it goes back to allowing for a gap. So there, there are these two major events that occur after verse 26. So it couldn't be continuously the third view is that the 70th week of Daniel is actually an indefinite period and it began with Christ but extends to the end so we we don't know how long that period is it's very indefinite we just have a a general beginning period that was with the first coming of Jesus and extends to the end whenever the end was now that view, in my, in my opinion, just simply spiritualizes the whole issue. There's no literal fulfillment, no specific chronology given to us. We might not will not even have the, the prophecy if we can't pin it down to anything. There's a fourth view, and the fourth view is that the seventy seven is seven literal years. Beginning with the public ministry of Jesus and ending about three and a half years after his death. Now, again, if you look at verse 26 and verse 27, uh, the time frame doesn't seem to fit, uh, does does not seem to be any real fulfillment to the climax with that view if he is killed three and a half years after. You see, or the the, the seventy seven ends three and a half years after his death. The bottom line is each of those four views which claim fulfillment largely in the past, they have one common failure. none of those four views provides, in my mind, a literal fulfillment of the prophecy. so we do not have a full literal fulfillment of the prophecy. If you go back to verse 26, halfway through the verse, we read this. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. The the general tone, the general tenor of that of those two sentences, in the last half of verse twenty six. They they have a striking uh, likeness to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter twenty four, in his Olivet discourse. The first half of chapter twenty four, up through verse fourteen. And I'll leave you to read that passage, and you'll see the the striking likeness. It was in that passage, and Jesus stated, that hardships and suffering and, and war would continue right up to the end of the present age, culminating in a time of unparalleled tribulation. I think it's important to note that this entire period, this intervening period, if you will, is referred to before the final or 70th week is mentioned in verse 27. So the, what you read in the last half of verse 26, the war, the destruction, the desolations, all of that happens before you even get to the 27th verse. And all of that is conforms to what Jesus said in the first 14 verses, of, of Matthew 24, when he talks about the end time and the destruction to come. And I suggest to you, again, that would imply that there's, there must be this gap of time before the 70th week is even talked about or uh, comes into play. Now, that would be very, very difficult to understand and very, very difficult to explain if, in fact, the entire 70 weeks are continuous. It seems far more reasonable to me that a long period of time of war, a long period of time of desolation is to intervene between the 69th and the 70th week. The 69th week, when Christ appears the first time, the 70th week, which will usher in his second appearing. So you've got this period of time. He came at the first, first time he came. Now there's this huge intervening time. And now the 70th week will usher in his second coming. Now let's get to verse 27 specifically. There's a word in verse 27, in fact, it's the very first word that raises, I think, a question. What's the first word of verse 27? He. It raises a question. The question is, who is referred to? Who is the he that we find here? Who will confirm the covenant with the many? Now, again, there are divergent opinions. There are many people who would suggest that the he refers to Christ. And the basis of that opinion is is the phrase, he will confirm a covenant with many. Now we know that he made a new covenant, right? Now the question is, does this covenant in verse 27 apply to the covenant, the new covenant that Jesus put into place? The second point that these people would suggest is that he will put an end to sacrifices and offerings. Did Jesus put an end to sacrifices and offerings? Yeah, right. By his death on the cross. He's the last sacrifice. He was the last offering. So based on those two thoughts, those two understandings, there are writers, there are scholars, there are are theologians who say the he is Jesus because he instituted a covenant and he put an end to sacrifice. However, you have to also take into context or into into, uh, our our frame of reference here the, the, the syntax of the passage. In other words, how is the verse set up You can't just arbitrarily say, well, it's Jesus because of these two things. Everything else has to line up. If you follow normal grammatical, syntactical practices, remember going back to English? You know, know, when I studied Greek in in, in school, I never learned English syntax like I learned it when I studied Greek. I learned what a gerund is. Yeah, I learned all the parts of speech. I thought, my gosh, why didn't I learn this when I was in school? (laughs) But if you follow the normal rules of syntax, then you have to go back and look for the nearest antecedent, the nearest noun, if you will, the nearest reference that he, the pronoun he, would refer back to. It's not just he hanging out in space. There, There has to be an antecedent to he, the only possibility would be found again in verse 26. And if you look at verse 26, that would be the ruler who would come. There's no other person in the text that gives uh, reference to that he as does that phrase, the ruler who would come in verse 26. If then it was a ruler of the Roman people who was to destroy Jerusalem, and that, uh, that we know from history was Titus, the Emperor Titus, it would not then be unreasonable to suppose that the he of verse 27 would also be a ruler of some quote-unquote Romanistic imperial empire in its final phase. Now, we've already seen that when you go back to Daniel chapter 2. You remember the the statue of nebuchadnezzar 's dream, and you get down to the feet and the ten toes, the final aspect of this empire and then you go over to Daniel chapter seven and we saw the 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 how many how many um, uh, how many horned beasts I know it was a while back how many horned beasts ten horned, horned beasts, and there were three horns that were displaced by one horn that became prominent. Remember? So again, we have that supportive textual evidence. So the ruler of verse 26, Titus, could in fact be a forerunner or a type of an imperial ruler identified as he in verse 27. Are you tracking with me still? This is the normal premillennial interpretation. And this interpretation puts forth that the reference is to a future ruler who may be identified with the Antichrist, who will appear at the end of the period between Christ's two comings, just before his second coming. Now, the next question, verse 27 poses Who are the many? With whom this end time ruler will confirm a covenant. The Hebrew word translated many. The very structure of the word hinges on a on a technical uh, point. It's called vowel pointing in the Hebrew. And it really is actually translated, and some of this is you'll see this in some of the translations. It's not in the NIV but it should be the many. So it's pointing technically to a a specific group, the many, not just many generally, without the, the definite article the in front of it. You follow me? So the Hebrew word indicates the many, and the many would be, again, a technical term referring to very possibly true believers. and among them, Jewish believers in Christ. Now, the reason I say that, and, and again, I can't be absolutely definitive, but the evidence seems to point, linguistically and as well, from other translations, and uh, more importantly, uh, the translations of the, of the Hebrew text, uh, one set of translations from the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, suggest that this word was used again and again, and it's confirmed in Isaiah 53, verse 11, where the same Hebrew word is used to describe the many. In the ancient Qumran texts from which the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, we have reference to the many, and that's translated as the congregation. And that was always applied to the believing people genuine believers now not Christians in the sense that you and I understand the term believer but genuine believers in God so it's it's a technical thing and, 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 and much depends on how you understand and how you translate it that's why I'm pointing it out to you so it could be that the many are in fact genuine Jewish believers in Christ now If we are to understand then that a ruler will come in the future and he will rule over an absolute form of imperialistic government, that this ruler then would confirm a covenant with believing people, more particularly believing Jews. Now why do I say Jews? Because Gabriel has already told Daniel at the outset of the prophecy that these things have to do with your people, meaning the Jews. Now there's lots of translators and lots of interpreters who wanna say the Jews have no part in all this. This is really, talking about the church. If that's so, then why does Gabriel say to Daniel, this has to do with your people? So again, I'm suggesting based on that, then this is very possibly having to do with believing Jews. And it would be for a stipulated period of seven years this covenant he would make with them. He will make some kind of binding commitment that would permit these Jewish believers to carry on their religious practices, including the offerings and sacrifices that have been set forth in the Mosaic law. Now, if these, if these Jews are truly ones who believe in Jesus, if they are Messianic, It may well be, then, that the sacrifices they offer will be conducted as memorial services, much like we we come to the Lord's table and we celebrate the Lord's table as a memorial to his death. So, So these sacrifices will look back to what Christ has already done. They'll memorialize what he's done rather than look forward to and be sacrifices of atonement covering their sins. Are you with me? Follow what I'm saying? So instead of, just like the Jews practiced them in the Old Testament, these sacrifices were for their sins, for their sins, for their sins. No, they will be sacrifices memorializing, celebrating that one final sacrifice that Jesus made for our sins. Are you with me? So the fulfillment of this prophecy necessarily then would involve a reactivation of the Old Testament sacrificial system then, wouldn't it? And also, it would involve a reactivation or a reconstruction or reimplementation of something else. What's that? A temple. A temple. Yeah. Now, many, many people think, and no doubt if you've been part of the church and you've heard stuff over the years, many, many people think today that the present occupation of Jerusalem by Israel may, in fact, be a preparatory state uh, to the reestablishment of the Mosaic system of sacrifice and, indeed, a temple. Obviously sacrifices could not be stopped and a temple cannot be desecrated unless both are in operation. Again, we don't know for sure. So this is a supposition. We want to hold it lightly. But it seems to be leaning, from my vantage point, in that direction. Verse 27 goes on to say that in the middle of that seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, remember, some people believe that the he is Jesus, puts an end to sacrifice and offering through his one final death on that cross, his one final sacrifice. I suggest to you that's probably not the best interpretation. After three and a half years, for reasons that are not explained in the text, this imperial ruler will see fit to break his own agreement with these Jews and prohibit the public exercise of their religion. Possibly, possibly he will feel secure enough in his autocratic position so that he can carry out all the features of his original secret plan to impose an absolute dictatorship on all people of his imperial empire, especially the Jews. All pretense of religious toleration at that point would be dropped. The ruler at that point will aspire to absolute authority and complete control over the life and the thought of all mankind. And then he will display himself as the incarnation of all divine authority on earth. Paul speaks about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. He says that this man of lawlessness will go even so far as to enthrone himself as the living embodiment of God on earth. Let me just read to you the verse. <clears throat> he opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped and even sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now again, there's a divergence of, of, of belief when he says sets himself in the, up in the temple. The temple is either a literal temple or it is a temple in the sense of the body of Christ, the church being the temple or the body of Christ. Are you with me? So you have those choices and we have to do some continuous study to see. But again, I go back to uh, Gabriel's words to Daniel. This has to do with your people. And it's it's the history of Israel from, from the the rebuilding of the city in 445 B.C. to the second coming of Christ, to the end. So I submit to you, though it possibly that phrase in in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 could refer, temple could refer to the church, the living temple built of living stones, says Peter, uh, it may in fact be a literal physical temple uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, I mean, when you think about it, and you draw comparisons, uh, there, there, there seems to be a step-by-step uh, progression here on the part of this ruler of tyranny. And it would bear a remarkable resemblance to the development of the Nazi tyranny in Germany. Hitler appeased and lulled in, into a false sense of security the religious community. There are many, many Christians uh, and as well, Jews, religious Jews, who were encouraged by him and lulled into a, a false sense of security until he could consolidate his power, and that's when he turned on everybody. It seems like that same M.O. might in fact be here with this first three and a half years covenant, and then he breaks it, and then all hell breaks loose. So there's, a, there's a, I think, a, a, a tremendous parallel there. The final statement of verse 27, the last sentence, this is a very, very difficult passage. Again, the entire passage is difficult. But the last last says, And one who causes desolation will place abominations on a wing of the temple until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So there's, there's much confusion about what's the wing of the temple, what's the abomination, who's the one that does this, Uh, the subject of the phrase place or commit abominations would be the ruler himself. So the one would refer back to he who would refer back to the ruler who was to come, the Antichrist, uh, most clearly. And he will apparently initiate some kind of practice of worship that will absolutely appall or be detestable in the sight of any true believer. To Jew and Christian alike, any image set up in the place of God is an absolute abomination, is a detestable thing. Would you agree with me? Just detestable. It doesn't matter if it's a form, doesn't matter if it's an idol, doesn't matter if it's a man, doesn't matter if it's an ideology, doesn't matter if it's a state, or whatever it is. It is something detestable. If you go way back to the book of Exodus, in uh, chapter 20 of the book of Exodus, we're told that God and God alone is worthy of adoration. God and God alone is worthy of our worship. God and God alone is worthy of our praise and our loyalty and our true commitment. Listen to his words. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above on the earth below or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, he goes on to say, because I am a jealous God. In other words, it's just me. Now, if Antiochus Epiphanes, back from the 2nd century B.C., that cruel, cruel Roman ruler, if he is, in fact, a forerunner to this last world ruler, We do know from Jewish history that he did set up an image of the god Zeus on God's altar in the temple in Jerusalem. And this was a detestable, abominable thing in the eyes of the Jews of that period. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 13, this was described, that very event was described as. The rebellion that causes desolation, or the transgression that horrifies, would be an adequate alternate uh, translation. Again, Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, describes this as the abomination that causes desolation. So you see that phrase repeated again. And it's interesting, it begins in verse 15 of Matthew 24. There's a separation between verse 14 and verse 15 if you read the passage with Daniel in mind with that gap. So it's an abomination that horrifies. It horrifies because its very presence transforms God's holy sanctuary into a heathen temple. Abominable, despicable, despicable. The expression abominations on a wing of the temple or on the wings of abominations, that also is obscure. No one knows for sure what that means. It may refer to a wing of the temple where the image is set up, or it may also refer to the wings of a monumental bird, meaning possibly an eagle, which would represent some pagan god. That last, this last reference uh, of this abominations on a wing of the temple may hold a clue to the interpretation of the same phrase used by Jesus in verse 15 of Matthew 24 when he spoke of the abomination that causes desolation. When it, he describes it, this is a sign of the end. It's commonly thought that this is a reference, again, to the Antichrist. And it's to be associated with Paul's description of him as the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, who will defile the temple and whose coming would be a prelude to the end. Let me read to you again from Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped and even sets himself up in the God's temple to to, uh, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. There is debate on this passage as to the identity of whoever is holding back the law, man of lawlessness. We'll get into that down the road. It's, it's just all very, very complicated. He goes on and he says, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the, lawlessness will, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. People are going to be deceived wholesale, en masse, because they refuse to lay hold of the truth. They're just not interested. It's a fairy tale. They have no interest in this. And this is why we're rehearsing these things, because there's much thought that we could, in fact, be living in such a time. I don't know for sure. I'm not confident that we are or not, but there is some concern about that. If you go to Revelation chapter 13, John identifies in Revelation chapter 13 that there's a future ruler, and this future ruler will not only take himself to be the absolute political power, but will demand the worship of the entire world, will blaspheme the true God, and indeed persecute the saints. Let me read to you from verse 4 through verse 7. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast, who can make war against him. So this would be the Antichrist. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. He was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So you see there's going to be some ruler who is going to be given authority over literally all the earth and he's going to conquer the saints. Power. But his period of power will terminate at the second coming of Jesus Christ, as Paul had identified to us. Like the desolation of Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, which is going to continue until the consummation, The desolation according to Revelation 13 will continue until the consummation pictured rather dramatically, I think, in Revelation chapter 19 where the beast and the false prophet are cast into, guess what, the lake of fire. This will be the termination then of the 70 weeks of Daniel and it will coincide with the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. So this whole period, if I can summarize, this whole period, Daniel's great prophecy of the 77s, comprehends the total history of the Jews from the time of Nehemiah in the year 445 B.C. until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Remember what Gabriel said to Daniel. This encompasses your people, In the first period of the seven sevens, the city and the streets of Jerusalem were rebuilt. We know that from history. In the second period of the sixty two sevens, which follows immediately, the Messiah, the Anointed One, appears, and he is living at the end of that period. So, by the end of the 62-year period, or the 62-week period, which encompasses the total of seven 62, which is 69s. So, the, at the end of that period, the Messiah is alive. All right? There apparently may be this gap between the end of the 69th 7 and the beginning of the 70th 7. Because in verse 26, it says, after... There are two things, two major events that take place in between. The first one would be the cutting off of the anointed one, the death of Jesus, and the second would be the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now, if we subscribe to a gap theory, then actually the whole present age intervenes between the end of the 69th seven and the beginning of the 70th seven. And then we come to the final period of the seven years, which is encapsulated in verse 27. The final period of the seven years begins with the introduction of a covenant relationship between the future ruler that shall come and the many, the people of Israel. This covenant is observed for the first half of that future seven years and then the liberties and the protections granted are taken away. The people then experience great persecution. The beginning of the last three and a half years of Daniel's 77's is marked by a desecration of a possibly future temple, the stopping of sacrifices and the desolation of the Jewish religion. It is this period, referred to by Jesus as the Great Tribulation, recorded in Matthew 24, starting at verse 15 through verse 26. Now, what if... What if we are alive at the time all this happens? What if we are called upon to bear the horrible sufferings inflicted by this Antichrist? What do you think? Now, I know some people say, no, we're going to be raptured. We're going to be taken out. I don't know. We're going to get to that. But what if? What if we are called to bear these sufferings? What hope do we have? Do we have any hope? Do we have any guarantees? What is it? The Lord's going to be with us, isn't he? This goes back to the beginning when I talked to you about that song that we sang. He's in us. He strengthens us. And I believe with all my heart that if we are called to be part of this, that he will be with us, granting us a deep, sense of his presence that we are not alone some of you already understand that presence some of you have experienced that presence in the midst of severe testing that God has just made his presence known to you God promises that he will be with us most of the time isn't that true all the time all the time Sometimes we pray, oh, God, be with me, be with me, be with me. He's already with me. He said so, didn't he? Rather, we should just be saying, God, thank you that you're with me. Thank you that you're with me. Thank you I'm not alone in this. He promises that he will always be with us. The last days of human history will bring a period of, 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 of just unbelievable trials unbelievable suffering, unbelievable tribulation for true believers. That's what we're told in the Bible. But as in every generation, when God's people are persecuted, when God's people go through terrible times, he is with his people. He's with us. His presence will guide us through all hardships, no matter what may confront us. Hebrews chapter 13, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. If you look into the Greek translation of that, you'll see that there are five negatives in that verse. Not necessarily clear in the English. It's as if God is saying five times, no, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we may say with confidence, the Lord is my, what? Helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That's our testimony. When it's all said and done, that's our testimony. What can man do to me? Franklin Graham, when he was asked about this very thing, about going into into places of civil war and and risking his life, he said, first of all, he says, I don't risk my life unnecessarily, but if God calls me to go into a dangerous situation, what can they do to me? All they can do is kill me. And then I'm what? I'm home. (laughs) You, You have to have that kind of viewpoint, because if If this life means so much to you, and you're holding on to this life so much, you're really going to be torn. Let me read to you Psalm 34. Great passage. It'd be worthwhile to meditate on this throughout the week. Here's David. David, when he was running for his life, and he was so afraid that he took refuge in his own understanding and pretended to be insane. It was after all of that, he says this, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. Amen. Our God is great. Our God is great. Praise him. Let his praises be on your lips at all times. Father, thank you for your provision for us again. Thank you for your word to us. Lord, we are so weak, and Lord, we are so faithless at times. And yet, as we recall your word, how strengthening and encouraging it is. We thank you. We love you this morning. Father, we do pray your will be done. Help us to keep our eyes open and to pay attention. Help us not to be paranoid or to be fretful or worry or fearful. But, Lord, that we know that you are sovereign, that you control our destiny. and Lord, we can trust you and we can live this life as Christians, as points of light with abandonment. Lord, that some others might be saved. God, we commit our way to you again today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor, tell your neighbor one thing that you learned that's helpful to you. Then pronounce a blessing on your neighbor if you would. And then if it's appropriate, only if it's appropriate, give your neighbor a holy hug and very possibly a holy kiss. Let's stand together and sing his praises one more time before we dismiss.